the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, that's a frightening setup. (laughs) Good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you on board for this Wednesday, 12th day of January already. My goodness, time flies when you're dealing with a new year, isn't it? Well, at any rate, good to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. We're going to be all over the map tonight, so just strap on your seatbelts, folks, because there's a lot going on in the world around us that affects your life, and we're going to spend some time tonight talking about it. I want to lead off first with an issue, and perhaps you've already begun to experience some of this yourself. Maybe you've been by the grocery store, you've been by one of the big favorite box stores where you do all of your shopping for, you know, 500 pounds of pinto beans and things of that sort, and perhaps noticed some of the shelves are looking a tiny bit sparse lately. Well, there's some reasons for all of that, and Dominic Pino joins us now. Dominic, by the way, is the William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism at the National Review Institute. And, of course, Dominic, the big question that we're all wondering about is the combination of the impact of COVID, the weather, and certainly the the challenges related to supply chain issues – all resulting in, well, we've seen some of this here in the Bay Area, most notably down in Southern California. That's got a lot of cargo ships all backed up, waiting for their opportunity at birth. And, of course, with this, we've seen the um, the containers stack seemingly mile high. Give us a sense of what's going on here. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, Craig. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you uh, today. And um, And, yeah, we've got a situation where, we're looking at about 100 container ships that are uh, lined up waiting to make their deliveries uh, at the San Pedro Bay ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Um, the reason for this backup, obviously, is the huge surge in uh, consumer spending coming after the pandemic, after everybody's been locked up inside uh, and, um, and still haven't been able to spend on services as we'd like to. And so a lot of that spending has gone to goods instead, which then have to be shipped from all over the world to get here. And uh, that's the situation that we have lined up out there. Um, the reason that this, uh, as this goes out um, uh, into into the ocean is because, uh, you know, they have to wait in line in order to get a spot unload and our ports are unfortunately some of the least efficient in the developed world and so that line just keeps getting longer all right you have perhaps touched on maybe the achilles heel here 
kind of the uh, you know what's the old adage the uh, the the pink elephant in the room that nobody is talking about. So much of this has been attributed directly toward well supply chain issues, COVID shut things down, then we open things back up, a big splurge in spending as you point out, and so people are buying, companies are shipping, and the ports can't accommodate all of this uh, significant increase in traffic along with truck drivers that haven't been driving. The impact of COVID now, of course, here uh, uh, the weather, while not directly here in California, so much of an issue, but in many of our neighboring states. But I have to wonder how much of this may also perhaps be sort of um, revealing some inherent inefficiencies. If you look at a normal day at, say, for example, the Port of Oakland, it would seem to be a well-oiled machine as the cranes pick the uh, the cargo units off the ships and drop them uh, to port there and then move them on to the backs of trucks and they make their way uh, hither and yon and wherever they might be headed, uh, and it seems to be a well-oiled machine. Is this current scenario beginning to sort of show that there are some significant weaknesses in our system? And I, and I wonder if that be the case, in your opinion, Dominic, uh, is this even perhaps potentially a grander potential problem for us? Not just that you can't get your favorite widget at the local big box store when you want it, but is there aspects of this could that even potentially impact national security? Uh, yeah, Craig, I, I think you're right that this is sort of, um, you know, the way I like to explain it is this isn't something that was just caused by COVID. Um, it's something that has exposed vulnerabilities that have been around for decades. Um, and these vulnerabilities are about sort of our, our uh, backwards technology in our ports. Um, you know, we have some of the greatest tech companies in the world, but we have some of the least technologically advanced ports in the world. And that's because of a combination of things. Um, one of those things being uh, powerful dock workers unions that want to protect their jobs. And more efficient ports means fewer union dock worker jobs. And I don't have to tell your audience in California how powerful the union dock workers, uh, the dock workers unions are. Um, and they've been able to pressure politicians into making sure that their ports don't get automated. That's how these other countries are able to handle uh, these uh, changes in demand because they have robots <laughs> that do a lot of this stuff, and they have uh, and and their ports out, their ports already operate 24 hours a day. Um, you know that's something that uh, has just begun to start happening in the U.S. And so those are things that we should have done decades ago, but. We can do it now. It's at least better late than never. Yeah, to be sure. And, and of course, as I allude to, you know, it's one thing when you're not able to get materials that, uh, you know, bring your favorite widget to market. It's another thing when it's raw goods and materials coming into the United States that may be needed for uh, more important things like the production of medicine or, uh, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and, and not to suggest that we need to be prepared here at any time to be on a quote-unquote wartime footing, but it's... It makes you wonder what would happen were we to find ourselves in a skirmish and all of a sudden this is beginning to lay to bear these extreme inefficiencies in the way our docks are being run. And as you point out, uh, the International Longshoremen's Union, which was founded right here in San Francisco, uh, has had a very strong say over the way these docks 
all up and down the West Coast operate, and uh, it, it almost makes you feel as if, uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we're operating on the timetable of 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of the rest of the world thinks. Um, and, and that's the important thing to remember as well with this is, you know, uh, this is about global trade. Um, and so, you know, we have to be competitive uh, with respect to other countries. We can't just uh, lay back and, and pretend that that doesn't matter. Uh, and um, that's kind of been our attitude towards this for, for decades now. Well, and the other thing, too, Dominic, is that on the face value, this is not just an inconvenience. I mean, well, to be sure, that's it. But the bigger issue here is, for example, we've got hundreds, maybe thousands of Teslas that they've not been able to deliver because they're waiting on the goods coming in from China, some of which are probably sitting in some of those containers out at sea. And so what happens? Demand is high, supply is low, prices go up, that impacts the economy. I mean, there are aspects of this that, quite frankly, go beyond just a sense of embarrassment on a global level, that there is sort of a domino effect economically of all of this. Why is isn't the government, and I hate to say it, but, you know, there are times when, frankly, they're in the best position to step in and say, you know, there are issues here that not only relate to national security, as I'm suggesting, uh, but but need to manage this as a a critical asset that if, if supply chains have interruptions... And businesses, of course, have learned to rely on things like just-in-time um, supply. Uh, Toyota perfected it here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area when they were operating at what is now the Tesla plant, where essentially, rather than having to stock goods and having them sitting on a you know flooring cost and sitting on a shelf for months, they arrived just in time for when they're needed to manufacture cars, not, not anticipating any significant interruption in that, in that flow of goods. Uh, can create absolute havoc. I mean, we're we're essentially looking at what could be an economic disaster here if we don't get a better handle on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and unfortunately, government at every level has been standing in the way of making a lot of improvements. And so you have at the local level, the city of Long Beach used to have a, well, they still do have on the books, a container regulation that says you can only stack containers one on top of each other. Um, and uh, they just recently, a couple months ago, they waived that regulation to allow uh, those containers to be stacked four or five high. And that, you know, just by doing that, you doubled the container capacity. Great move. But, you know, this should have been done a long time ago. At the state level, you've got environmental regulations in California that have prevented BNSF, one of the biggest railroads in the country, from expanding rail capacity at the port of Long Beach. And then at the national level, you've got um, tariffs. Uh, on truck chassis, and truck chassis are the uh, trailers that are used to pull containers. We don't have enough of them, but there's a 250% tariff on importing them, which might as well be a ban. And so companies in the U.S. can't get more of them. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, government is something that's standing in the way of making a lot of these improvements, and one of the best things they can do it's just way off. Well, and unfortunately, both the past administration and the current administration, uh, while they have been eager for uh, the America First approach and let's uh, uh, focus more on domestic manufacturing, you, you have to give enough time for manufacturing to catch up with demand. 
And in the meanwhile, that supply chain coming in from overseas is vital. And like it or not, we're in a global economy. And, uh, you know, this is the old, uh, what's the old adage about, you know, the minute you, you know, tear open the feather pillow, you're never going to get all the feathers back in no matter what. So we can talk about wanting to focus on domestic manufacturing over foreign, but the fact of the matter is a good percentage of the U.S. economy spins on foreign trade, and it always will, whether we like it or not. We have opened up this pillow. We're going to have to live with it. Dominic Pino, William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism at the National Review Institute. Dominic, we appreciate the time and the insights, and it's, it's going to be an ongoing problem. Let's hope the government wakes up fast enough to do something about it. In the meanwhile, maybe seeing the occasional empty shelf make you more appreciative of when they're not so empty. 515 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. As you are undoubtedly aware, this month of January marks Sanctity of Human Life Month, coinciding with the 49th anniversary of the historic and tragic Roe versus Wade decision. One of the issues that um, that comes to mind in relationship to to the broader issue related to not just the sanctity of human life, but inclusive to that, is the issue of sex trafficking. And it's, I think, more than disappointing when we recognize that we've had district attorneys in San Francisco, for example, including our current, as well as past DAs like uh, Taryn Talanan, who wish to decriminalize the so-called sex trade based on a very erroneous notion that somehow it's a victimless crime. Really? Let's get some insights as to where things stand as the White House has released a national action plan to help address the issue of human trafficking in general and human sex trafficking in specific. As we're joined by Dr. Michael Shively, Senior Advisor on Research at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Dr. Shively, thanks so much for being with us. It, it seems as if this is a topic where we take two steps forward and three steps backwards in the sense that I think there has been a rise of, of greater focus and attention and understanding uh, and awareness of just how widespread this issue is, both domestically and globally as well. There are more organizations springing up to help to address it. And yet I wonder if at the end of the day we're really doing enough. And is there is there a lack of cohesiveness when it comes to cooperation between NGOs, the government, law authorities, the whole the whole gambit to, to help not only address the issue of human trafficking and exploitation, we'll call it, but as well as to clamp down on those that are responsible for these crimes. It just seems to me as if we're, we're <laughs> this is not as well-oiled a machine as it ought to be. Well, you put it well. We really have uh, trends going in opposite directions. Certain things are progressing, moving ahead. We we are learning more and more about what you know the problem we're facing, and also the uh, you know what to do about it. There there are more NGOs, there are more federal programs that some of them have been extremely helpful. Yet at the same time, we have some uh, forces that are pushing things in the opposite direction. We're actually losing ground, and you alluded to the 
the effort that um, you mentioned it in San Francisco and a few cities, but it really is a global effort and definitely a national effort to uh, legitimate and normalize commercial sex of all kind, which includes uh, prostitution. And you don't have prostitution without having sex trafficking. So we're, we are gaining, gaining grounds in some areas and losing it in others. You know, I look at this in some ways similar to, for example, uh, illicit drug use in the United States. We recognize that we have a significant problem. A lot of focus has been placed on uh, those who engage in the growing or production and uh, importation and distribution of illegal drugs. But, you know, at the end of the day, Dr. Sively, um none of these in, in the drug trade for example, would exist if they didn't have customers. And the same thing is true, obviously, when it comes to uh, human exploitation and sex trafficking, that if there weren't customers, there would be no business. And so I wonder if whether or not we've really done enough to clamp down on the quote-unquote end user, on, on, on the, um, the, the purchaser, since those oftentimes, and I'm going to exclude, of course, those that are, that are in, the, in the, 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 um, um, uh, the pimp end of this spectrum, uh, but clearly many of the people that are, get pulled into this thing are pulled in against their will. But every client, every customer, they're in this of free will. Are we doing enough to bring these people to justice? Absolutely not. It's a short answer. Um, it is the one element of the entire fight against uh, sexual exploitation and particularly sex trafficking. That is, if you could only pick one thing to do, that would probably be the one you should pursue is the consumer level demand. You know, we, we talk about the, the hundreds of billions of dollars on a global scale, and, and it's just such a massive global business to sexually exploit people in sex trafficking. And uh, not one penny of the entire global market originates anywhere other than a buyer. You know, without consumers, there is no business, there are no pimps, there are no traffickers, there are no victims. So. Uh, given how it's the the one and only driving force, other things are contributing factors. Um, obviously, vulnerability kind of picks who's the easiest to exploit, but it doesn't solve the problem. You know, you can't like uh, you can't just you know tell people how to do a better job of spotting pimps and avoiding them. I mean, I have a daughter, and I tell her that too. Who wouldn't? But it doesn't solve the problem. All it, all it does is determine who gets picked, and the easiest people are the ones that get victimized first. But the buyers are key, and it's the one thing that has received the least attention. There was about a 10-year period where there wasn't one federal dollar spent on it, even though there were hundreds of millions spent on all of the ele other elements of the, the problem. Now, this year's National Action Plan from the White House for the first time in a long time, it was a federal strategy document that mentioned demand. It's pretty tepid because all it does is say, you know, it, it directs a study to be done about demand. So it isn't, you know, aggressive or comprehensive. It's not what we'd like, but it's better than nothing. And it's the first mention of demand in a key strategy document for many years. 
You know, it, it strikes me here, and, and you've aptly pointed it out, that uh, um, we can do a lot in terms of trying to uh, to control or, or educate, I should say, a better word, those that are potential victims, those that are, are most vulnerable. Um, but at the end of the day, if we can shut off the demand, then that so-called supply will will uh, you know uh, will obviously uh, disappear, and so that would be I think a two-pronged approach. Number one, there's a, a moral equation to all of this, quite obviously, but there's also a law enforcement equation. And I've often heard, and I've even had discussions with uh, police officers from the city of San Francisco that say, you know, we we find them, we see them, we bring them in. And the next thing you know, the DA's office is saying, well, we've got bigger crimes that we need to be uh, prosecuting, and uh, this is a victimless crime. And so uh, the follow-up on prosecution, even if there are laws on the books uh, to help you know, curtail all of this, well, they just don't follow through. So is there anything inside of this plan that helps to address that major failure, especially in more, quote-unquote, progressive states like California, where the AG's office office or, or local DAs just choose to look the other way? Well, it, I don't have an easy answer for you, but you definitely are right on target about the problem. Um, I think, you know, the, the thing is there are people that profit. There are people that view commercial sex as an industry, and the people that profit are going to continue to advocate for it. And they're also going to advocate for a complete lack of regulation. Like, they aren't arguing that we should make it a safer legal business. That doesn't work either, but at least there's a logic to it. But what they are, what the decriminalization forces are actually saying is that they want to take the most dangerous way that money can be made that exists and strip away any and all regulation they don't want it taxed. They don't want it regulated. So if you think about a business of any kind, of course, most businesses would say, give me less regulation. I'll take that. This isn't business. It's a criminal enterprise, and it exploits human beings. And, uh, you know, it has no business really being thought of in the same breath as things like decriminalizing drugs. Um, but what the people that are... Uh, profiting from commercial sex are doing is they're they're simply co-opting language and they're jumping on trends so they're jumping on an anti-policing trend and they're saying oh well this is just going to be a way to make things safer from the evil police you know let's decriminalize prostitution and other people are they they're saying that it's a way to reach uh, achieve racial equity and social justice and they basically take things that, that have legitimate arguments to be made, and they co-opt the language, and they are selling this idea of decriminalization. And uh, there are prosecutors around the country that are buying it, and there are constituencies that are buying it. And San Francisco is a tragic situation because 15 years ago, it was not only a national leader, but it was a world leader in understanding exactly how to stamp out sex trafficking. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris was the DA and Gavin Newsom was the mayor back when they had the leading programs in the world for attacking demand for commercial sex. But the political winds have shifted and the left has really uh, adopted this notion that it's you're better off decriminalizing 
and people that know better are now going along with it. And San Francisco's gone from one of the best cities in the country to one of the worst in terms of addressing sex trafficking. Oh, by far. I mean, you 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 take a walk down, uh, you know, just about any street in the Tenderloin to see evidence of that. And any attempt to try and legitimize this is absolutely criminal. And I think it's also very duplicit that the same people that would be the first to stand up and say women's rights need to be protected, the Me Too movement needs to have its voice all legitimate, and then to lump prostitution into the same category as if somehow it's on a par really demonstrates just how morally bankrupt some of the advocates for this are. Michael Shively, Dr. Michael Shively, Senior Advisor on Research at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. We appreciate the update. Information available for those interested on the web at endsexualexploitation.org. That's endsexualexploitation.org. 532 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation, and a dear friend joins us now. She is certainly uh, no stranger to KFAX listeners. She's been with us uh, many, many times down through the years. In addition to being an award-winning author, she is founder of Braveheart Mentor Coaching. And Dawn Damon, good to have you with us. Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year. I'm so excited to be with you again, Craig. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing well, and appreciate you carving out a little bit of time to to join us here in the new year and uh, to kind of help us get to how should I say fire back up again. I, <laughs> yes. I was talking to a colleague earlier today and uh, just commenting about you know the weather and uh, all that we're reading in the news about COVID and so on and so forth. And I said, you know, every once in a while, my grandmother had a phrase uh, when she was feeling a little bit on the lethargic side. She would say, I think. My get up and go got up and went, <laughs> and, and that probably describes a lot of us. Kind of coming off the backside of the holiday doldrums, the Christmas lights have all now been turned off. We're looking at stories related to COVID, as I say, just all over the news, nonstop. And people are looking at this saying, new year, new beginnings, but it doesn't feel very new to me. It just feels like the same old with a different digit at the end of it. So give us some insights in terms of how do we get our batteries recharged for the new year? Well, you've described it so very well. And I think, you know, we're in a national crisis. We're, we're a nation of post-traumatic stress individuals. And... The Bible tells us very clearly, without a vision, people perish. And so it really is time for us to get a vision again for our futures. We live in a both-and world. Yes, this is all going on, true enough, but we still have to have a vision for our life. We still have to have a picture of where we want to be in one year, three years, five years. It's still too soon just to fold it up, cash in our chips, and say, hey, it's over. And so I'm really encouraging people right now to, like your grandma said, let's find your get up and go. Let's get it back, get that fire. And it really starts with creating a vision for your life. So I'm a proponent for vision, for vision boards, and for clarity, because if your vision is vague, your results in life will be vague. 
hard to mark progress if you don't know where you've started and where you're heading towards. I mean, wouldn't a wouldn't a football game be pretty boring if there was no score and uh, <laughs> we 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 didn't have any sense of keeping track of how many downs and and uh, you know where are we to get to the first down and and keep progressing you know down the gridiron. If 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 we took all of that away, uh, football would be pretty boring. And and I guess maybe when it comes to life, when we don't have established goals and mile markers along the way to get a sense of where our pacing is, are we on track, falling behind, are we ahead, what are we doing here, that, that a lot of that must contribute to it. People, people feel as if their lives aren't moving forward because they have no plan to move forward. Am I right? Oh, so, so clear. Yes, absolutely, you're right. And here's the thing, you know, goals, um, every year I would, I would do, you know, a New Year's resolution or set some goals. I want to lose more weight. I want to save more money. I want to pray more, read more you know, watch less TV, such vague goals. And they're really not goals really at all. Goals, you know, we know we've heard a lot about smart goals. And so, you know, we talk a lot about setting goals, but really being super specific. But it comes down to one word, clarity. We have to be clear. And I say we got to start with being clear on three things. The first thing that we have to be clear on is we have to know where we are. I mean, we have to take an honest inventory of where we're starting from. So, uh, you know, I love traveling. My husband and I love traveling. And the first thing I do when I get off the plane, Craig, is I look at, you know, I love, you know, where's the bathrooms and where's the snack shack. But (laughs) after that, you know, I'm looking for that big, large map in the airport that says you are here because I need to find out where I am. And it's true with our lives. You have to seriously locate where you are. Go deep, drill down, be reflective, be honest. How are you doing with your relationships? How are you doing with goals and dreams and desires? What about your circumstances, your strengths, your problem areas? What's the condition of your finances? Let's be honest about the status of our bodies, our health. Are we happy with where we are? What about the job that you're in? Do you love it? What needs to change in your life? What things are not as they should be? What do you need more of or less of? So we really got to locate where we are right now. That's the first part of gaining clarity in our lives. And I would imagine a, a big part of this that can be very helpful in, in, in formulating that clarity is to write things down. And I know we live in a day and an age when we prefer to grab the cell phone and, you know, text. Our thumbs are busy, but uh, picking up a pen and a piece of paper seems to be terribly old-fashioned. But, you know, I've always found that writing things out, uh, creating lists, being able to check things off of a list, my goodness, there's no better feel than to to start with a list on a Saturday morning and say, I've got to do these next 10 things uh, over the course of the day and to get at the end of the day and have, let's say, eight of the ten crossed off, boy, that sense of accomplishment. Uh, it's like keeping score in a way, and it, and it really can help you sort of mark whether or not you're on track or you need some readjustments, uh, need to maybe reclarify your thinking. Sure. I love Brian Tracy. He writes a book called Eat the Frog, and he talks about that thing, doing the very hard thing first, being really clear on what your goals are, and doing something every day that moves the needle towards... Uh, progress in your goals. 
but even more, you know, in, in addition to having goals, do the goals fit into an overall vision of your life? Where do you want to go? Not just for today, not just for this month, but what do you want to accomplish this year, in the next two years, three years? Jim Rohn says this, in five years, you will arrive. You will arrive. The question is, where will you arrive? Will you show up in a future that was blueprinted and created and well-crafted? Or will you show up in a future that you just got there by default, not design? You know, I don't want to be here. I don't want to wear what I'm wearing. I don't want to do what I'm doing. I don't want to drive what I'm driving. But I'm just here. So it's really critically important that we figure out, you know, what is my big vision? What is the thing I feel like God has called me to? Um, that that uh, fairy tale, or I don't know if it's a fairy tale, but the little story, Alice in Wonderland. She has a conversation with the cat. And she says to the cat, the Cheshire cat, she says, would you please tell me which way I ought to go from here? And the cat says, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. And she says, I don't care much. And then he says, well, then any path will do. Hmm. And, you know, that uh, that's how it's li- like in life. If we don't really know where we want to go, we don't know what we want to accomplish, then any path will do. So gaining clarity on not only where I am, but now where do I want to go? So like really specific, like you're saying goals, we reverse engineer. What kind of body do I want? What kind of spouse do I want? What kind of relationship? What kind of house do I want to live in? Or where do I want to travel? What kind of book do I want to write? Or ministry do I want? I mean, God really invites us into this process of dreaming with Him and saying, make the vision clear. Write it down on tablets. God's not going to write the vision down. He's wanting us to write down the vision. He put it in our hearts. He said, I'll give you the desire of your heart. I'll implant desires in your heart. Now, you by faith... Claim it, speak it, and go after it. So where do we want to go? Be specific. You know, one of the issues, too, that comes to mind for some people, that as we talk about establishing goals, being able to um, mark progress along the way, and then be able to look back on where we're at and and determine, have we arrived at where we want to be? Or, you know, you said five years, you'll be there. Where you'll be, well, that's a different story. But one of the other issues that some people are struggling with, and much of this, I think, certainly in the wake of COVID has been problematic, that people are reevaluating their lives Maybe slowing down over the course of the pandemic has caused them to take some inventory. And they've determined when they get up in the morning, not only do they not like their situation, but maybe they don't even like the person that looks back at them in the mirror or or, or, or even still perhaps just don't know who that person is. They feel as if their own um, sense of identity in the midst of all of this has been lost. And I know that you've got a, a new podcast out, and I want to mention that folks can uh, can locate that podcast at dondamon.com, D-A-W-N, dondamon.com. Just in, in a nanosecond, if you would, Don, uh, speak to that issue of folks being able to, first and foremost, as we're talking about finding a path for 2022, maybe it needs to start with finding themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes back to locating you, being really honest about you. And this is a time, I totally agree, Craig, so many people reinventing themselves or rediscovering themselves. And so this is a gift that we've been given really as this 
interruption or disruption in our life, there's a lot of moving parts, and this is a good time to really get clear on who you are, what you want. There's a book out, it's called, um, well, I can't think of it right now, but he's like, you need to live for what, for you, what you love, not in a selfish way, but do the things that you love with people you love and making a contribution to the world. And so I think for a long time, we've just done what we think everybody expected of us, but maybe now it's our turn to say, God, what did you really wire me for? What it really is my passion? And then just be willing to dream again, be curious and investigate our lives. And, and then baby step, take small steps towards moving that needle towards the direction that we want to go. Yeah, like the old adage, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? Some insights from Don Damon. Pastor Damon uh, has a podcast available that touches on many of these topics. The new Braveheart Mentor podcast entitled Locate You in 2022. Good starting place for a lot of us. Information on the web at dawndamon.com. D-A-W-N-D-A-M-O-N, dawndamon.com. Thank you, Don, for being with us. 548 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, I, uh, let me offer, if I might, just an unsolicited endorsement. I, I, I don't get paid for this. They're not a sponsor of this show. They're an advertiser on the radio station, but that's it. Uh, but uh, having been down that path of colon cancer myself, um, Six years ago, let me do the math. Yes, six years ago, this past December, December 10th was the anniversary of my surgery. Uh, Take it seriously. And if you're a nanosecond over 50, don't tempt fate. Go in and get a colonoscopy. It's not pleasant. It isn't certainly something to look forward to. But the alternative of major invasive surgery, hospitalization, and uh, watching your, your life pass before your eyes, yeah, it it beats that in a heartbeat. So take my advice, having been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. Um, if you're 50 or over, just go and get the exam. Okay, that's my personal testimony. Let's, <laughs> let's turn a, a corner here, shall we? January, as we mentioned earlier, is Sanctity of... Life Month, we mark the tragic 49th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision, and um, it's a time I think to call on all of us to uh, to renew our commitment to uh, life and to not only value it but to do all that we can protect it. And that's true not only here in the United States, most certainly, but even overseas. It's an issue overseas as well. People don't even I think oftentimes uh, recognize the fact. Uh, and sadly that the United States has been indirectly contributory uh, toward a spike in abortions overseas as well. So thinking about this almost in, in, a, in, in a missional sense, I think, is something the church needs to be mindful of. Melissa Hyland joins us, founder and president of Beautiful Feet International. She's got a book out called Get Set, a Spiritual Preparation for short-term missions, published by the Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And Melissa, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about these almost dualistic uh, equations here, Um, not just the matter of um, protecting and celebrating 
life. Um, but also, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated on uh, your efforts in encouraging people to get involved in overseas missions. Tell me more. Beautiful Feet International starts international pregnancy centers, and we have over 50 pregnancy ministries in 17 nations. And uh, one of the things that we do is take teams, short-term teams, to serve in places where we have our pregnancy centers. And let's get a sense of how um, how God kind of first put this on your radar, your personal radar. Um, well, it was really interesting. I have been working in pro-life ministry in the United States since 1995, and I started taking mission teams around the world in the year 2000. So I was kind of doing pregnancy ministry work in the U.S. and then taking teams overseas to do other kinds of things. And in 2012, my husband got a call from someone that said um, they wanted to donate a house to um, actually our son because they knew he wanted to be a missionary doctor. My husband said, well, he's got to finish medical school and his residency, and we'll call you back in five years. Uh, When my husband told me that, I said, Ken, if somebody wants to give us a house for ministry, say yes. Don't say we'll call you back in five years. And I knew in that moment that the Lord wanted us to start a pregnancy center there in Costa Rica. I had never had a dream of that, but I just knew we had we had done ministry there. We spoke Spanish, and I just knew that's what God wanted us to do. I kind of thought it would be a one-and-done thing, but when that center opened in 2013, then requests started coming to us first from other places in Costa Rica and then throughout places in Latin America, then it spread to Africa. Now we're in the East, and God has just um, brought these places to us one at a time, and as I said, now we're at over 50 pregnancy centers around the world. And, and that sense overseas is as urgent as it is here in the United States, isn't it? I mean, we, we talk about the spread of, of, of false information by organizations that financially profit from abortion in the United States, and, and we know that it's kind of an uphill battle to fight all of this misinformation and to truly give women choices, choices that go beyond just being forced into a corner to have an abortion when they find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy, but rather to be able to explore options such as take carrying the child to term, putting the child up for adoption. There are many uh, fine organizations across the United States that provide not only um, uh, direct support, but emotional and spiritual support, too, because a lot of these women feel abandoned. In that sense, I would imagine, and, and a part of this is cultural, that in, in, in certain parts of the world, that sense of being completely on their own, having no support, and feeling as if uh, they have no choice, they're kind of being backed into the corner, has got to even really exacerbate the problem. Absolutely. And in fact, 85% of abortions happen outside of the United States. And as you can imagine, many of these countries where we are, um, women are, they are so devalued anyway. And so when they get pregnant outside of marriage, they are oftentimes thrown out of their churches and just kind of thrown out in the streets. And there really is nobody to help them. And and it's quite a dire situation. And so what we do is we go in and we educate the churches about what the Bible says about the sanctity of human life. And basically the model that that the, the Bible gives us for how to care for these women. 
Do you run up against circumstances where, as much as, without naming names, there are organizations here in the United States that financially benefit from promoting abortion on demand? Do you run into that overseas as well? Absolutely. These same organizations that are in the United States are are throughout the world, and you would be, maybe you wouldn't be, uh, just surprised to see these names showing up in very remote places as well. Well, it's an important work that you do, and I think that the church here in America needs to be uh, needs to be mindful that when we talk about overseas missions, as we do frequently on this program, that it's not just about going into the highways and byways and Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts, right, being salt and light, but, but part of that salt and light is inclusive of standing up for life and being there for women and providing them not only the the resources but the support necessary so that they can make the right decision in an unplanned pregnancy. This is a big part of the mission of Beautiful Feet International, and we encourage you to get more information about Melissa Highland's ministry by going online to Beautiful Feet International. That's Beautiful Feet International. Melissa, thanks so much for the time, and uh, we, uh, we pray that uh, God will continue to bless you in your efforts as you bring the message of the, the gospel and the gospel and a message of life to uh, hurting women all over the world. There's Melissa Highland, BeautifulFeetInternational.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.